Hey, it's Diana and Susanna, your favorite global health scientists. And you're listening to Global Caveat. Today, we're going to talk about community health work, responses to pandemics, and the implementation of international aid. But first, thank you so much to all our supporters who make Global Caveat possible. Take a couple seconds to give us some stars, share us with your loved ones, and leave us a review. If you want to further support us with your dollar dollar bills, you can sign up on our Patreon for just $1 a month. Yes, please support us. But now let's dive right in. On today's episode, we'll be talking with Zulika, a storyteller, head rock enthusiast, and a PhD student in planning, governance, and globalization at Virginia Tech. Hi, Zulika. Thank you so much for your time. I know you're busy. Thank you, Susan, and all that. So I appreciate you. No, thank you guys for having me. Yeah. Um, so if you can provide just a short intro about who you are and then any contact information if people want to reach out to you. Uh, my name is Zuleika. I am currently a PhD student. I'm doing a PhD in planning, governance, and globalization uh, with a focus on study abroad experiences, particularly in Africa. I am also simultaneously um, completing my MPH uh, with a focus on um, education, the education track. Um, and I am identified as an African-American. I am a Liberian-American. My family migrated to the U.S. from Liberia in West Africa. Mm-hmm. And I moved to New England, Providence, Rhode Island, and now I am in Virginia with my fiancé. And we're both PhD students here at Virginia Tech. Wow. Both of you are PhD students? Yes. How's that? <laughs> oh, man. Mm-hmm. Our lives are, yeah, papers, papers, papers. <laughs> yeah. Papers and reading, I bet. Pretty much, yeah. 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 At least it's, it's, it's nice to have someone who understands that I, I don't, we don't have no date nights. We don't have nothing. It's <laughs> that. So it's nice to have that. Yeah. I can't imagine. Um, so cool. I didn't know that your fiancé was also a PhD student. Yes. Okay, so let's go straight into then your experience in working in public health settings. You've had a wide range of experiences. Yes, I so immediately out of college, I did my undergrad in psychology and cultural anthropology at Northeastern in Boston. So immediately after that, I got a job at a hospital in Boston, mm-hmm. and they had a violence prevention team. Uh, previously, I was into doing health education um, for my co-op education or my experiential learning experience. I worked at a high school, a local high school that I used to go to, talking about sex education and all of that kind of stuff because I have no problem talking about stuff like that. So I, I felt very comfortable standing in front of people and talking to them about sex and making all these posters and talking about STDs and watching the look on the students' faces. So that was my first experience. And then I got this job right out of school and I worked on a violence prevention team. But I didn't know what I was signing up for. I thought I would just be talking to people, you know, about stay off the streets or something like that. But it turned out it was actually like talking to people who were involved in violent accidents and gunshot wounds and 
it was just whew, way above my head. I, I didn't know what I signed up for, but we the violence prevention team ultimately was working in the community. We we're trying to get people to do some kumbaya stuff, like get gangs to talk to each other and get and sometimes it was talking to mothers that actually lost their kids. So it was it wasn't really heavy for two years for someone who was just out of college, barely with any experience of what I was doing and coming from talking to high school kids. But working on the team, it was obviously it was an all white it was a surgeons, a lot of surgeons on the team and there was me and another person that was on the outreach team and I was just I feel like I was put in the middle of this thing I had no idea what was going on we would go to rounds and where you had the social worker the like actual medical students the surgeons talking about their experiences and what happened and then they would say oh we're here from the street team or the violence team what's life like out there what are you guys doing you know how can we help our patients like what did you guys learn about what's going on was there a stabbing was there a shooting like I'm just like sometimes I'm just like I really don't know what I'm into and I feel like I was put in the spot sometimes to speak for the entire what was happening in the hood so to speak and I I had no idea what was going on I was just this kid this from Liberia I just moved to the state went to school and I was I was just comfortable talking in front of people and then I was tossed into this role where I had to report and talk about my experiences on the street sometimes they're like oh we have this patient it's really interesting to go through the case and say this person got shot and you know you're not a social worker, but we want you to go in there, like just to break the ice and have a conversation, just to, to find, see where their hair is at. I was, and I go in, and sometimes I don't even know what to say, like, hi, or like, what happened? Like, I never knew how to start yeah. these conversations. But that was like my first. <laughs> That's interesting. Because it's like, if you're not trained to. Yeah, I mean, exactly. You said you're not a social worker. In those and then they didn't <laughs> train you how to do worker. it. No, it was just like, oh, you have some experience working with street youth, whatever that means. Uh-huh. And it was like, okay, so you're on the street team. You are the outreach person. So you're going to be talking. My official role was injury prevention and violence outreach coordinator. It was this long thing that I thought it was just like, okay, I'm going to be reaching out to people talking about how ways to prevent violence. We should be maybe like, yeah. so I attended, got some courses in violence prevention strategies but none of this was about like actual street gang violence i feel like it was just way over my head after first year do you think the um so the team that you were working with like the social workers and the surgeons was there did it seem like the team as a whole did not understand the context of the group that they were reaching out to or was it just yeah kind of, i think it was just one yeah. of those like check the box like we're doing some community outreach because um the area in boston where like in metapan and dorchester and other areas there was a lot of violence mm-hmm. going on so i think they were getting a lot of their patients from that area and maybe the assumption was i was from that area or i knew people from the area because even the hiring process like i, I was like i said i was right out of school it was really shocking for me and i was like wow really because this is a prestigious <laughs> hospital i went in and it was, I was looking for any outreach position because ultimately I didn't want to sit in a cubicle. So I was looking yeah. for a way where I would be out there like doing some presentations and then coming into an office somewhere. I just didn't want to be in a cube. So this was perfect. I read the description. I was like, oh, you get to go out. You know, there's a street team. There's a community outreach. Everything, all those words just sounded. And then I got in right there at the interview. They're like, you got the job. I mean, I was like, huh, great. <laughs> And I, I really learned a lot. Like, obviously, it wasn't as terrible, because, but it was heavy stuff. Sometimes I went home to, after, like, they had a peace walk that it did with women that actually lost their sons in Boston. They still do this every Mother's Day. I went to a couple of the walks with my mother. But this was heavy stuff for someone who was just, like, 
20, right out of college. And I was like, yeah, I don't know what I got into. And ultimately, obviously, that's why I didn't stay hmm. after like two years. I was like, no, I got to go. This is it. I, I thought maybe I'll have a life in public health, but not that route. Like mm-hmm. I knew I wanted to do something educational related, but I was in the hospital and I was on the street and I was actually meeting people that lives have been impacted by violence from the street. This was uh-huh. just a lot. Wow. That's really heavy. That's really heavy role to step into literally right out yeah. of college. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I don't even know what to say because that's yeah, I mean, I learned I learned a lot from that. I think I think like you said, populations like just dealing with because it was a, it was like two different worlds. I feel like when I was in the hospital with the surgeons and other, it was it was different. I I got to wear a lab coat, a white lab coat. I was like, this is, I feel like I'm in Grey's Anatomy. Like it was a, it, it was just cool. But then when you were out in the street, you got it was a whole different world. And I feel like I didn't fit in both of those worlds. I was not a practitioner, and then in on the street. The other person that was on the street with me, he were he had worked in New York with some street kids before, like doing some graffiti art projects. So he was really committed to this work and this is what he, you know, he wanted to do. And here I was, this young kid out of college, just walking wherever they wanted me to go. Sometimes I sat in on meetings with mothers, sometimes I went to like gang intervention, but it wasn't as scary as it sounded. It was just a bunch of young kids, like, you know, just up to no good, sitting around having conversation and they had funding that they provided maybe to say like there was pizza night so we have like a night with with kids in hopes that night spend at the pizza night will be a way out from doing something Mm, yeah how did you then find ways to connect with the community that you were working with like you said you didn't really you know you didn't really come from that world i'm putting that in quotes yeah i think i made like i said i learned a lot about myself and about them i i met a lot of kids that were just like at the wrong place at the wrong time sometimes at the time i had dreadlocks so some of them showed me where i could get my hair done while i was in boston so i think i made a lot of connection with people there but i think i learned a lot more about myself because i thought i was like this cool young kid like doing my thing and then that world was just completely different from what i grew up knowing and if side of boston that i because it's a college town all these different people but that side of being right in the middle of Boston was just completely different from what I thought Boston was about and from what I knew so it just it it taught me a lot more than I I I don't know if I give them a lot more but I I think like for me personally I learned a lot just from that experience yeah um so you were there for two years what did you move on to after that so I was there for two years and then I moved back to Liberia so at the time I lived in the U.S. for over 10 years by then and the war was over things was going back and just being on the street most of the times most days I'm just like I feel like not useless but like I said to you before I don't think this was for me I just feel like everything was over my head and I feel like I could be doing a lot more helping with library development being in touch with people and my friends on Facebook and other means I realized like I could do a lot more being there even if I didn't know or have a lot of experience I feel like I had to be a part of something that was going on and especially hearing from my friends or young people that have moved back to from the diaspora to the continent I feel like I felt encouraged and I wanted to go back so I did move back after that I worked at a university there um helping them with recruitment again I was out in the streets in the community again helping with recruitment um getting people to go to the university it was one of the only two uni- um government university in Liberia it was all the way in rural Liberia so that's where I, I ended up so I left from Boston to the village life <laughs> <laughs> That's very different. Yes, that was lifestyles. Different. Yeah. 
Um, how challenging is it to was it to do that work? Um, it was challenging. It was different. It was a lot of adjustment. Uh, considering when I left Liberia, I was a lot younger, so this was not what I remembered. And the war has changed a lot of things and people and places. So it was different for me. It was different. And then being there for the short while, right there, then the Ebola time happened. So. That was definitely a different time and awakening um, in connection to public health. That was, it was a, a different experience. What was that like to be there during the whole Ebola crisis? Um, so I was not there for the entire thing, but when it first started, I was there and I had to come back to the States. And just that experience for me, being quarantined, getting the Ebola phone at the airport, and just the stigma getting back here to the states. Uh, that it was just a lot. Uh, I left. I, I left from Hopper, got to Monrovia, and I flew into JFK. When I got there, even before I got there, because usually there's not direct flight to Liberia, so I flew through Brussels. Just the stigma, just having been on the plane with a lot of people coming from Liberia. I feel like at the time it was. It just started. It was sometimes around July. I think it broke up in April, so it wasn't as big. And the first case in the U.S. and I happened at the time so people were still on the edge but they knew of something coming from so people were you know a little hesitant talking to me even when I got to the JFK area I was told that I had to you know all the people from Liberia had to be in a separate area even though we didn't have anything but Mm -hmm. I just felt like the treatment was very different considering that I've been back and forth a lot of times and then I was given this phone that we called the Ebola phone it was a little flip phone I haven't seen a flip phone in a minute (laughs) They gave you a flip phone <laughs> and then you had to call every evening to give them your temperature. They give you a little kit thing to give a temperature. And I had to uh-huh. do that for a, a whole week just to make sure that, you know, you were actually you were okay before you could, you know, go on with your life pretty much. So, and then after that, you just dispose of the Ebola phone. What? So, yeah. Okay. <laughs> you just throw it away yeah, or? I don't think they wanted to touch it after. So they're like, what? I was like, oh, after your last call, is this it? They're like, yeah. And like, what do I do with the phone? They're like, it's yours. You can, can keep that. So, yeah. It was different. Okay. It was a definitely different experience. When you say different, is that like what kind of different? Because I feel like with quarantine situations, there's a lot of um, like human rights conversations come in because people are like, oh, well, we have this health crisis. So then if there's this health crisis and if you are potential, if you've been potentially exposed to it, you know, for the health of not just you, but everyone else, we're going to quarantine you. And depending on the level of quarantine, a lot of your rights to do things are taken away in a sense. So yeah, I guess how was the quarantine experience? Because I know that's maybe compounded with just the general society's response to you coming from Liberia. I think the experience at the airport, I think, I don't think I was quarantined for more than like two or three hours. We just had to wait at the airport because they were taking temperatures, coming back. Like I said, I have family members that was, it was actually worse. They had to stay overnight or two, three days. That's, for me, it was just like, it just, it had just started. My mother was going crazy and saying, you got to come home, you got to come home, you got to come home. So I, I left Liberia and I came, I think I actually landed July 4th, which is like a holiday, but I feel like the, the treatment I got obviously was different than usually we had to sit for a while they did the temperature came back people were wearing you know masks and gloves like it just felt like you're being treated like you had something even though you didn't and i for for someone who was in liberia and i know that how deadly it was i understood but i just feel like the eyes people looking at you that encouraged me when i came back we did start the ebola be gone challenge trying to get people to donate because the health situation in liberia is terrible 
obviously that's why the Ebola lasted as long. We didn't even have, like, where I lived in Hot Point, if I stayed, there was no ambulance at the time. They had no way to get people from there to, like, the centers that they established in the city. So there was a lot of reasons why people were that way. But I just, I don't know. I feel like I felt, the way I felt I was treated at the airport, I just didn't, it was not necessary. Even, like, people holding your passport differently, like, they didn't want to touch it. <laughs> like this? Exactly. They don't want to touch yeah. it. They're taking out their gloves. Even, taking precaution, I guess. But And then when I got back and integrated into regular society, the same thing. Every time I met someone, because I'm very proud of who I am, I tell people sometimes, I'm Liberian-American. And that was just like, whoa, How when did you go? How often do you go? Were you there lately? And you have to be saying, no, I don't have you. But I wasn't there. <laughs> no. Like, you, it was it was a lot. And then when I went to churches and school, because I was speaking at different places, trying to get people to donate. Every time I went, he has, I'm from Liberia, people... Oh, they don't really want to shake your hands. It, it it was, I mean, the stigma around it was a lot more. And I think it comes from, like, the lack of education. Not a lot of people knew. Just like now with the coronavirus, I just had a heated argument with someone this morning. I said, oh, I'm not going to Chinatown because of some nonsense. And I'm just like, you are just so ignorant. So I think that was, people just heard Liberia and they heard Ebola. And that was enough to stay away from that, so... Yeah, that's really sad because I feel like, um, I'm, yeah, I mean, you, you mentioned the coronavirus, but it's, it's weird because when I travel, um, I like to wear a mask, um, especially when I'm sick. I like to wear a mask just for like courtesy. I don't cough on the person next to me. But I remember it was kind of in the beginning stages of when coronavirus was hitting the news and I was in the airport and I was wearing a mask and I felt like more people were staring at me mm-hmm. um, and it was weird you know because you're like I know for a fact I don't have it yep. yeah. I'm not even Chinese like I haven't gone to the Wuhan region at yeah. all <laughs> You know, people will see what they see yeah. and then they'll make those connections. And so, I don't know, it's it's saddening to me that it's like, it doesn't matter where or what, if it's in a country that's other than yours yes. and you fit whatever I think description it's, I think they have. Other. Yeah, I think people just yeah. don't know. And it might come from a, a good intention or a good place, but I think people people they just, people really don't know. Especially now with the coronavirus, people are very ignorant about where every to them everybody from any Asian country has like it's just sad that people can't differentiate because for them it's just other places and they have no idea investing the time in knowing where it is. As big as China is, they don't they just they just need to hear anything that's related to China and they're like, Nope, not taking my chances. Yeah. Yeah. What are your um, thoughts and feelings about the international response to the crisis in Liberia? Um, I think people didn't care until it got to the U.S. And for someone who lived in Liberia, I can say for a fact there were a lot of people dying and things going on. And a lot of it was lack of education. People didn't believe it was such a thing. And then, like I said, there was not a lot of ambulances. There's a lot of, you know, breakdown in the system, obviously. But people didn't care. If you didn't live in Providence, Rhode Island, where there's a lot of... Um, Liberians or some other place, you didn't know what was happening. It was not on TV until that one guy came to Texas from Liberia. And then it was like, oh my God, I can't talk to anyone from Liberia. And every, it was such a big deal out of that. Um, I think a lot more people, there was a lot of doctors from Cuba that, that went. There was a lot of doctors from a lot of different places um, that helped a lot in the crisis. And we're forever grateful. I'm really you know, happy about the help that people give. But I think a lot of times things are not as important until it's on American soil or maybe UK or somewhere else. And then people are like, oh my God, this is actually serious. This is, and people continuously say now, like the coronavirus, is it here yet? How many people, like I 
people are taking all the precautions. And I was listening to BBC this morning, and they're like, oh, I think the first case of reported someone in Egypt, they're like, it's on the continent. And people are like, oh, my God, they're freaking out because they know for sure that they don't have the system for that. And I think there's only one testing center, and it's in South Africa. So I think people are taking precautions all over the place. But specifically here, I think the ignorance around it is what people are paying attention to more. So once it got the attention of the U.S., I imagine then more um, U.S.-based health workers were then heading over to that region, yes, right? there's a lot more U.S. intervention, a lot more people everywhere else, Europe and everywhere else coming to the aid of both Sierra Leone, Guinea, Liberia, and all the other places. That were- and were you there in the later stages of the whole crisis? No, I was not. No. So I, I did okay. not go back until like probably like a year after. Okay. Yeah, but there is obviously I was in touch with people and family. Um, did lose a neighbor's son that I knew, um, and some few other people that I knew. Wow. You're already like mentioning, or Susanna asked the question about how there were people going there, right? In response, but it's interesting because it, it, I mean, it's true, right? A lot of the world won't doesn't care or doesn't really think about it or react until it starts affecting people in like global north communities and areas right like if it doesn't hit somewhere in like the u.s or like you know the main countries in europe then people are not really responding in a way where they're like oh we're going to try to help everyone they're just like oh just like everyone get away from us which yes. is, yeah. you know, just quite frankly annoying. There's um, yes. <laughs> no other way to say it. So do you think that having that kind of response is actually, like, what are your thoughts on having that type of response where all these people, like, what are your thoughts on Global North responses to, like, international aid or international responses to these type of uh, quote-unquote crises? Um, I think a lot of times it is already a crisis before they realize it's a crisis. And it's not like the world just decides something is happening when they decide something is happening. So I think a lot of times as community groups are already on the ground doing the work, these people doing the work, the truth of the matter, they might not have the resources. So if the if people from here would just show up, you know, and give hand like they're supposed to, and then because people literally are dying. And if you have extra SS resources and you want to help, you should do that. But I think a lot of times people rush in because one, they want recognition. Two, they, they're doing it for the, not for the fame, but they want people to say, oh, look, the Red Cross sent 20 people here and this is what they did. This is what they did. Instead of saying, okay, they're collaborating with, say, a, a local group that is already on the ground. They just don't have an ambulance to get to where they need to get to. So maybe they can just donate that. But I think a lot of times the way the, the, the global north response to crisis is to not make it bigger just blow it up bigger than it is and and this scare tactic of oh my especially now with the coronavirus oh my goodness the way they report the way they're reporting the way they're saying things no wonder why people are afraid or saying oh i don't want to i'm not saying it's excusable to say i don't want to go to chinatown but they make the media plays such a huge role in how people react to situation that is not in the U.S. or anywhere else in Europe. It's so terrible. They show these images that they won't ordinarily show if it was the U.S. or anywhere else. They show people like at their worst conditions that you won't like you know the images that we we put out sometimes and i think i talk about this a lot on social media is like what story are we trying to tell if you if someone's dying a sick baby all why do you need to, to show that as someone who's actually intervening in the crisis are you not busy doing the work you're supposed to do 
when do you have time to do that? So I think I think it's not like wrong how they respond, but I think they one overhype the situation that is is not needed, and two they're not trying to collaborate with people who are already doing the work. They're only looking for more funding from their donors, so they just say, "Look at me, I saved like four people today from this burning building." So and all and there's people actually on the ground that probably saved like. 20 times as much but they don't get that that recognition they don't get that thing and i think like i said from the beginning i think things are happening already i don't think people are going to be sitting there dying and just sitting and waiting for intervention sometimes a lot of time the intervention coming either towards the end or just because it's a big enough of a of a intervention or aids that's why people get a lot of recognition yeah i think what i keep thinking is um how health when it's framed as a security issue, that's when Americans really get scared, mm-hmm. right? Because if you think about it, a lot of like the othering and scare tactics, it's always packaged in like, oh, our our security is in threat, whatever security means to you. And so once Ebola lands on American soil, all of a sudden every American life's is security yes. is in threat. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and same with coronavirus. So, and I, I have a lot of <laughs> thoughts about just the framing of it as a security issue Um, because we see it time and time again and how they report it and how they do that but I did have a question leading up to it but now I I got angry and then I (laughs) forgot what it was (laughs) Um, you talked about how you know sometimes what we need is collaboration right and a lot of times it's like just the lack of resources but people have the ability and the skill to address the issues on ground Um, so it makes me think about this whole kind of savior complex that not just people individually, but like whole nations can have or whole governments have, um, especially with like Western countries. So it made me think of how you kept mentioning, oh, you know, there like no ambulance like system. And then I feel like during the Ebola crisis, a lot of the news outlets were faulting the Liberian government and faulting the Liberian healthcare system for not addressing the issue. Um, And I feel like we hear that a lot in terms of just Africa as this monolithic <laughs> continent, right? Like all of Africa is corrupt and all of Africa doesn't know how to handle things in general. And, you know, what is your response to that? Because I mean, I, I'm, I hate that number one, but as someone from Liberia and, you know, what is your response to such ideas? Ooh, that, that's a loaded, <laughs> I don't, I don't know if we have time to talk about Africa corruption. <laughs> <No>. <laughs> but, um, there's a lot of issues. Uh, I think one we talk about framing is is how people frame. So obviously, if you if you create a narrative that people are helpless or people are corrupt, they can't handle their own money or they can't handle their own crisis. Obviously, that that creates the opportunity for me to come in. If I want to come in, I have to tell you a story of why. It's like if my neighbor was beating on his wife and I told you, that's the reason why I broke down his door and did this and did that because he was doing this. That makes, for you, you're like, ah. But if he was just sleeping, minding his business, watching his Netflix and you came and did that, that's different. So I think the idea of Africa being corrupt and being helpless and being poor and all of this thing, we have... That has to happen for the West to be who the West is. That has to happen for for us as people who, because I'm, I feel like I'm in this crosswalk, both being in the West and being from Liberia. Is like, in order for you to have poor people, you have to create this narrative that is like they can't help themselves. Mm. They need my help. Liberia government is corrupt. That's why we have to go in and help them. They, they're all just going to die off. They don't have ambulances. So the, the, there was never, the conversation was never the situation or systems that's in place. 
that why is it that they don't have ambulances in a country that have over four million people? why is it this country as a as liberia as it is was founded by free slaves from the americas so because of american slavery that they had here mm-hmm. they decided oh people are free they should go back to africa now they had nowhere else to put them but they said oh we can find a land somewhere and bring them back and this is how liberia came to be even though those people already on the land sounds familiar they were like hey let's go and create this place and that's how it's fun so they they have a bunch of people who have never lived on a, this land before they bring them back so the natives and people who were who were returned from america they have this crisis so liberia's always been over two three decades of crisis civil wars here and there from 1847 to like now so all this system of things is happening of course they can't govern themselves because these are people who never they were doomed from the beginning they had a, a country of returners and natives fighting all the time there was never no reconciliation up until now after the thousands of people that died in liberia war there are no one that was held accountable there's no one who went to jail people just went about and said okay well now back to regular peace building whatever that so i think there's systems this history of places this, that those things never get told it's just like they're poor they have no ambulances and they're corrupt so we have to go and help them Am I saying Liberia is not poor? Absolutely not. Am I saying that people are not corrupt? But pe- the systems that are in place is is not a system that people are going to live a life. You can't live of minimum wage. There is no system that has a minimum wage of people working and getting a job. Everyone depends on NGO. So we need the NGO aid. So it's almost like we're, re- self, we're relying on aid, international aid. So they have to keep creating this narrative that we they need us, they need us, they need us. And the truth of the matter is, as it stands right now, everyone needs all the aid they can get because from time in existence, there's never been able, there's never been a time that I can say it had a great healthcare system. No, we've never had a healthcare system that worked because half of the doctors or people that are educated, like myself, ran away during the war. That was started because of conflicts of natives and returners. So I feel like it's a long history, and that's just one country in Africa. So imagine all the other people that have been on the colonial rule for us since like 1960s and 50s. So like few years ago, people still had like colonies in Africa. So I feel like the conversations are always one-sided. It's like, let's blame the government. They can't take care of the people because the government that's in place have never had anything. It's almost like you just have people in control to say we have a president. But is it really if they if 70 or 80% of their income is from foreign aid? Of course, they're not going to. If you give me $10 and you said, hey, I want you to buy Starbucks. If I've not had food all day, I'm not going to buy Starbucks. I'm going to buy something else. So a lot of times the corruption is mismanagement of funds because people are redirecting foreign funds. Because in my case, say when I worked at the university, we would get aid and they say, we want you to open an e-library for people to have Skype conversations and video calls. The students don't have chairs. They don't have food. Why would I build an e-library when I can just buy chairs? So in that situation, they're going to say, people in Liberia are corrupt. When we give them $10 million to open up an electronic library system, no, we didn't do that because they didn't have chairs. They didn't have a blackboard. So I think a lot of times the corruption is just a mass that is thrown over mismanagement of funds because people are on the ground. Am I saying there's not corrupt people in Liberia or Africa? No. But I'm also saying that sometimes it's the entire story is not does, does not get told. And I, this is what a lot of times online I'm I'm mad about and I'm saying I'm not saying people are not poor. I'm just saying the the West is the one who's telling the story. And until like the animal gets to tell the story, the hunter will always be the hero. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What so then what are your thoughts on how 
communities and organizations, how can they do better? Because like you said, Liberia needs the aid right now. Um, so I think it's very easy for international aid agencies to have very paternalistic intentions and views about the aid they're giving, i.e. the whole history of international aid from the U.S. <laughs> um, but how do we balance like the need for aid versus having equal power in between the giver and the receiver of that aid? I think I think a lot of times the conversation about aid starts at the wrong side of the table. I think people here in the West decide like, okay, we have ten million dollars. What should we do? We should go to Africa and help. I think the conversation should start the other way around. I think people should be in Africa saying, I've lived here or I worked here or this is what I've done. And I see that people in Liberia don't have this. They don't have this. They don't have this. And then on the other side, say, okay, you have $10 million. This is what we need the $10 million for. But people are channeling programs to match money that's already available. So someone says, I have $10 million for AIDS education or for I don't know free condoms but this is what it's for and so they bring the money and then people in Liberia would, would create programs or make things happen because they want to fit this narrative of what the donors want I think INGO decide what they want to do they have their goals if your INGO is focused on education that's what you want to do so you're going to go to every low African village and give backpacks and pencils and this is what you want to do instead of saying okay they need backpack and pencils well there's also a lot of malnourished kids in that village that you could probably start a food nutritional program with but that's not my goal my NGO is only for backpacks do you understand mm. so I think yeah. a lot of time aid work is directed it's it's channel to follow what the international organizations or the NGO want. And I think that's to do better aid work is to collaborate. We've talked about this like a lot of times. It's to collaborate. And sometimes collaboration from Kenya is not going to work in Tanzania. It's not going to work in Liberia. Just because you worked in a village with women, with, they're not the same. Just like here, people in Virginia are not the same as people in California. So you don't expect to have one copy and paste program that worked in Tanzania. And now you're like, okay, pack up. We're going to do the same backpack program over here. I think people need to think about working with people as their people. They're not, they're poor people, yes, but they, they have needs. They have different needs. People are complex. People are different. Just because they're poor does not mean you can just be like, okay, let me just give you a backpack. Of course, they're going to take it. A lot of times, being in Liberia, I know people come in, the local NGO will take all your old clothes, all your shoes, your old computer. They don't even need that, but they're going to take it because, you know, people feel good about it. They take pictures, more computers and backpacks is going to come. So they're going to take it. So I think I think the conversation about AIDS should start where you want the aid to end. It should start at the end where you talk to people that actually need you and then you figure it out that you build programs around that to fit that. And a lot of times people who come in with the money are the ones. So most times when you hear NGOs say it's a collaborative effort, is it really? Because if you have the money and you say, you know what we should do, let's build a hemp up, they're going to say yes. So I think the conversation should start without any idea of what you want to do already. If you if you came in and you said, let's figure out what this community needs. And then in that order of priority, we build programs. That's a different thing. Obviously, if it's a public health issue, if it's something that's, you know, people are dying, that's a different, you don't have time to do that. But if you really want to make impact, long impact, sustainable impact in the lives of people, you should start where the people live. You shouldn't be in in boardrooms here and saying hey i have this much money create a program yeah make me look good yeah mm -hmm. that's so true i it makes me think of um this one person who used to work with the un and they specifically worked with um um the humanitarian sector so they were working in like emergency response and they were saying it's it sucks because 
a lot of people they'll donate to like the Haiti relief, you know, or things like that. And they said one of the, what sucks is if you can actually look up the breakdown of funds of what like what parts of like the needs of the country they're funding, and a lot of people will earmark what they're donating, right? And so, for example, Haiti, let's say they need clean water, you know, money for clean water initiatives, but people will earmark it for like education. And maybe at that time in that community that the money's going towards, that's not what they, that's not their priority, right? And so, but they have to because that's like what it was earmarked for. So the money goes into education, 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 but then like, what about the clean water? Kids are dying because they're not getting clean water. Yeah. So it makes me think of that. And there's a lot of work to do. <laughs> there is. There's a lot of work, but there's, there's, there's some folks doing some really good work. Um, and I think it's just, a lot of time, aid workers a lot of bad name because of this kind of mentality of like the money coming in at the far end. People are collaborating, but really, this is an equal uh, relationship. But there are some people who are doing some great work, and especially some locals, people who are not waiting for the West intervention. There's people who are on the ground doing a lot of great stuff. Do you do you have any examples that come to mind of something like that? Yes, I do. Um, a friend of mine is in Liberia. She's Liberian. She moved there she's lived there she's been doing this uh, education initiative called keep and she does stuff around young students and reading and literacy and she's been working there for years and a few years ago i think there was this big ngo called more than me that was working with some young girls in liberia it was like an example of like aid gone terribly wrong where the girls they were protecting got raped and there was hiv and AIDS. in fact it was terrible it was like the worst NGO thing you could think about and people kept saying well international aid can have to come in because there's nobody doing anything and I, I felt terrible I was like my friend has been working in this particular line with young people for the longest time um her organization is called keep Liberia um and I think so like kids engagement educational project um and they do some great work she, her goal is to build libraries because the wall destroy a lot of libraries so there's not a lot of books and she comes to the States, she collects some books, like actual kids' books, not just like any random book people are trying to get rid of. And she's trying to get them to rural areas. And she's, she's, she's trying. I think that's just one example. A lot of different people are in different sectors doing different things all across the continent. And I think we should highlight those instead of just saying international aid is not working. I mean, some international aid, they should just be partners. See, if there's like a big organizations that have money and they have books, because she paid like at least four grand to ship her books there. So that sort of money, if someone's like, okay, I have five grand for education in Liberia, instead of going there and giving her backpacks, they can just help her ship her books <laughs> yeah. to what's already working. So I think those are the, the kind of things like it works when you know what's already working instead of reinventing the wheel. A lot of people reach out to me and say, I want to do some aid work in Liberia. I don't know where to start. And I'm just like, first of all, what skills do you have? Like you, I don't want you to just get on a plane and go to Liberia and say, here I am, I'm here to help because then you'll be in the way. Mm -hmm. But if you have some sort of skills, like if you're great with marketing, you can help an organization and help them build their page and market and do all that stuff you can do. If you are engineer you can go there's a lot of things that's lacking that you can help build so i think um there's a lot of different ways people can collaborate yeah mm -hmm. so what um given your wonderful insight into all these issues um what do you how 
do you hope to translate all of that in your PhD work somehow? Yes. So I'm I'm still looking. Obviously, this is my first year, so I have some time. I'm told people change like three hundred times before they get <laughs> there, but I'm st- I'm really hoping to do some work around study abroad and representations of the of the continent. I think a lot of all of these international programs, like my school now, have over a hundred programs that we do. So I'm I'm hoping that to look at just how it's marketed, how people are going to the continent. Sometimes a lot of the study abroad posters are just like terrible. Some lady with baby on her back and some like a <laughs> oh, yeah. tree or like <laughs> oh yeah, I know exactly what you're talking like, about. What does this have to do? Like people carrying water on there, and it's like okay, I know you want. So I feel like the white savior complex that we talked about. At the university level, I'm looking. I'm looking around, like the theory of are we reproducing those right here at the university? Are we telling students like go to Africa and be a savior? Because we're like, look at the images that you tell, look at the, the stories that you tell. As a teacher, you're saying like people in third world countries have nothing, so you have to go and fix it. Is this why we really are we really doing that? So I think I'm just I'm looking at way to build more ethical like um, study abroad programs and international experiences, especially to the continent. So in that realm, like I'm I'm still like I said, I'm still taking classes. I'm not into like my field work yet, but hopefully I can get to the point where I can at least make some impact on how people travel to Africa. If it's not just for study abroad, or any sort of international experiences, a lot of people want to volunteer. I get this all the time. Like they want to go to Africa. They want to go to Africa. I want to go to Africa. <laughs> Everybody, black, brown, because obviously this is helpless, you know, place that people want to be. And I think like if you don't have the experience, you don't have the skill. It's a lot of money. I don't go home often because it's a lot of money. So I don't know how people are just spending money to just get there and take pictures and come back. So I think intentions versus impact is what I'm looking at. Like people have a lot of great intentions and we can just, you know, work on those intentions (laughs) and and make them better. That's really interesting. Um, And then how you you said you decided to pick up the MPH degree as well so so i am doing the education track for the mph there's two tracks they have the epi track and the education and definitely i mean i like i said i experienced part of the ebola crisis and i think a lot of it was like education around that and i would like to incorporate that into my um because if i'm into my dissertation somehow um just looking at um education policies um health education policy especially in international i mean in developing countries like liberia I'm looking at ways that we can get message out better. I think a lot of times it's just like, don't have sex. And they have this big condom, <laughs> condoms on like a, a poster somewhere. And I feel like that gets the work done somehow. But it's just like a lot of scare tactics. Like the, the messaging, I think I'm looking at mostly the images and the messaging in our um, education program, our health education programs. Yeah. yeah, that's awesome. Is there anything that we haven't touched on that you really feel like you want to say or... No, I think you guys touched on everything. I mean, I think the stigma around, like, diseases that people don't know about, like the coronavirus, the same thing with Ebola, I think people need to educate themselves. That's mm-hmm. very important. And I think people need to to start just jumping on the plane to go to Africa. First of all, what part? Mm-hmm. And second of all, <laughs> uh, I think people need to... Um, be nice to your neighbor here first, and then you can jump on a plane and go far away. I think international aid is great. It just needs to be done in the right way, and that starts with collaborations on the ground. Um, yeah, I think I cover just about everything. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you. Yeah, yeah was... thank you so much for sharing uh, your experience yeah. and your thoughts. And um, it's a lot to digest, but it's like good stuff. Mm-hmm. Yeah, thank you. Thank you guys for having me. Thank you guys so much for anything you do.
guys are doing such educating people. I listen Thank you. Thank you. And that's the episode. Thank you so much, Zulika, for talking with us. As a reminder, you can reach her at Zulika, Z-U-L-E-K-A underscore on Instagram. The resources and transcript for this episode are up on the website. As a reminder, if you have any questions, you can always reach us at globalcaveat at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at globalcaveat. And a big thank you to all of you, our listeners and supporters, for helping this podcast run. And a special thanks to Cordell Glass Hot Cocoa for producing our music. Thanks for listening.